Welcome to the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we explore the interesting lives of business leaders, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit. It is time to explore something cool. Now, here is your host, Tom Singer. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. Thank you so much for pulling your chair up to the cool kids table. We have crossed over that episode 450 mark, and uh, we're still going strong here. We're, we're going to close in on 500 later on this year. I started the show, as I tell you all once in a while, with the intent of doing 50 interviews, uh, just so that I could get myself out of a rut, because I've come to know one thing to be true in my own time as an entrepreneur, and that is success leaves clues. So if you ever feel like you're, you know, bang, banging your head against the wall, uh, get around some people who are doing cool and interesting things, and they cannot help but uh, give you a nugget, an idea, a theory, a little bit of inspiration. And that's why I started the show. I was kind of on a little plateau in my own business. I was in a rut, and I thought, let's get around 50 cool entrepreneurs, see what they have to say, and we have never looked back. Uh, I continue to get those nuggets, those ideas, those theories, and that inspiration, and I think today's show is going to be exactly that. I think you're going to get uh, really inspired, and I think you're going to walk away with some to-do items that's going to help you go out there and, and grow your following and, and really get people engaged with what it is that you do and what you have to offer. So before I jump into today's show, I have to thank the first sponsor of this episode. Now, many of you out there, you offer physical products to your fans and your customers. And dealing with that physical stuff, God, we all know that can be a pain because you got to box everything up and go to the post office. Hey, my friends at Amplifier, they blend order fulfillment, screen, screen printing, and on-demand production into a single self-service platform that you control. And that's who I work with for those t-shirts that say Try New Things, which you can go buy one right now at trynewthings.shop. That's trynewthings.shop. And remember, I am trying to pay for a wedding uh, for my daughter, so uh, I need your help. Go buy a t-shirt, man. Uh, anyway, they over at Amplifier, they can integrate with your e-commerce shop. They're great for big companies and small. And on demand, it means no inventory risk. So as you grow, you can then stock up on inventory, say cut your costs a little bit, and Amplifier, they can help you with that. Jump over to Amplifier.com slash cool things and sign up today. So speaking of today, I promised a great episode. We have Jonathan Mendanza, and he is from Choose FI. And I am excited for him to talk about his journey and what his company is all about. So Jonathan, welcome to the show. Tom, thanks so much for having me on. Excited to be here. Oh, this is awesome. So thank you so much uh, for being here. What is Choose FI? Yeah. So it's a made up word, right? <laughs> uh, choose financial independence. And in my mind, financial independence means two things for me. One, at a tactical level, it means reaching the point where working is optional. Not to say you don't work, not to say you can't work, but if, if you do work, it's on your terms, it's by your choice, which kind of immediately changes the frame. And I'll come back to that in a second. The other half of that is once you have reached or frankly, are even on the path to financial independence, you quickly realize that what it becomes is a life optimization strategy because essentially what you've achieved in your life is a level of space or maybe an alternate term bandwidth. For the first time, potentially you have bandwidth. If you look at our country here in the United States, the average family has a less than 5% savings rate. Many people are running in the negative using financing to make it from one paycheck to the next. Mm -hmm. They're one emergency away from the financial cliff. What does it look like when maybe you have a month of savings, a year of savings, several years of a savings? What, if, what does it look like when you frankly, are making the choice to show up to work because if your work disappeared, frankly, you don't, you don't need it anymore. Along that path, you realize that you want to start tackling these other aspects of the journey, things that actually light you up. And that is an incredibly powerful position you're fine to find yourself. And it's something that we explore with our, with our podcast, Choose FI. So I think that's really awesome because uh, I've been on both sides of that. I've had a year's worth or more of money sitting aside that I could use as an emergency fund. But as an entrepreneur, we all know sometimes it's hard to, you know, control your finances. Sometimes your finances control you and, uh, you know, sales go down, expenses go up, kids go to college and uh, kids get married. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, where did that emergency fund go? And so uh, how do you deal with that? This is so interesting because I have to look back at my teenage self. I was never going to be an entrepreneur. I knew, quote unquote, knew, right, that all entrepreneurs fail, except for the ones that have those million dollars idea. Nobody I knew in my social circle was an entrepreneur and pulled it off successfully. 
And I didn't have that million dollar idea. So why even try, right? What I think I didn't realize at the time, just to kind of end cap that a little bit, is that most entrepreneurs fail, but then build a success on top of that failure or, or a string of failures lead to that because they're looking for it. And because once you start digging, you start getting people that help you and provide additional information. Like, yeah, that original idea was frankly trash, but if you tweak it slightly, there's something here. So that's just one interesting piece of this. But even then, even with that knowledge, that is not the path I chose. In 1999, I uh, Googled <laughs> in the early Google days. One of my first Googles was top 10 professions because I wasn't going to do that crazy entrepreneur thing. I wanted a safe, steady job. And pharmacy showed up on that top 10 list and I pursued a pharmacy degree. So four years of undergrad, four years of uh pharmacy school, graduating at the age of 28 years old with my pharmacy degree, working for the first time in an entry six-figure salary. I've made it, right? Well, that degree came with $168,000 of student loan debt. And I, Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. yeah. And, and I feel bad about the fact that my finances go up and down. That's a big number. Yeah, absolutely. So I had this, this is like, this is the path, right? This is what America tells you. And, and frankly, the world tells you, you need to go get one of these STEM jobs, one of these, you need to go work in medicine. You need to get as much education as possible. It will always be worth it. And the government has your back. You can always just pay it off. There's always going to be ROI there, except there isn't always. I mean, it worked out in my case with this entry level six figure salary. I basically for the next four years, like a madman paid down my student loan debt, getting back to broke in my early thirties. And I look at that now with the information, some of which I'm going to share on this episode and say, was that really the most optimal path, like compared to entrepreneurship or an alternate career altogether? Uh, I, I'm not totally sure that it was, but it does help define my story and give me a place to kind of build from. So let's, let's talk about financial independence. I said, it's that point where working is optional. So how do you, how do you get there? Well, the amazing thing is it's not based on, you know, a million dollar idea or getting the patent, right? Oh man, if only I thought to get in the patent, I'd be good to go. It's not, it's, it's not, it's not that. It's just based on simple math. And what is that simple math? Well, we have an equation. What you earn minus what you spend is equal to the difference of the gap. So with most people, there is no gap, right? We're paycheck to paycheck. So you will be working forever, right? <laughs> well, if you, if you know that that's the equation and you're going to have to alter one of those things, we can blow up the income or we can cut the expenses or we can figure out how to optimize the difference. Well, you don't really have to choose, but you probably want to start somewhere. I think for most people, it makes sense to focus on the expenses, at least on day one, because that's something you can make a change on immediately to increase that gap and give yourself more options. So what, is that, what does that actually look like? And, and let's just tie the math to some, some actual numbers here. If, we just said, if you're paycheck to paycheck, you're going to work forever. If you have a 1% savings rate, then you have to work 99 years to get one year off, to pay for one year of your living expenses, right? I mean, that, that's pretty simple math. It's not calculus. If you have a 25% savings rate, you need to work for three years to get one year off. But if you can save 50% of your income, you can work a year, you can get a year off. And then what's insane about that is if you can stack just a few of those together, if you can stack like 10 to 15 years of that together. So if you can maintain a 50% savings rate for 10 years, and you take that difference and you invest that in just basic solid investment strategies like low-cost broad-based index funds, the magic of compounding. Einstein says the most powerful force in the universe is compound interest, right? The magic of compounding is that within a period of like 10 to 15 years, you're going to essentially get to the point where working is optional for the rest of time. So that's just like an underpinning here. And we can come back and fill in the gap like, well, how do I do that? I'm paycheck to paycheck right now. And that's, that's interesting. But just keep that in mind. When I was growing up, Nobody I knew was doing this. Like the advice I got from my parents was, hey, um, you should probably pay more than the minimum on your credit card or make sure you pay it off every pay period. That's like the extent of the financial knowledge that I had at the age of 18. And the problem is you don't likely have anybody in your local social circle that's doing this. And I just assumed that was the norm. It is the norm. But that doesn't mean that there's not people that are doing this. I know a community of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people at this point are people that have anchored themselves to a 50% savings rate. And the amazing part is, if you're anchoring yourself to a 50% savings rate instead of a 5% savings rate and you miss just a little bit, you're still saving 20 or 30%. So that's my larger point. Your savings rate drives everything. And I think I'll, we'll stop there for a second. But as I come back to entrepreneurship, we'll show how powerful that is for the entrepreneur. So I, I love the concept of that. However, one of the problems that you know a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of my friends have and the people who I've worked with is when you're starting a business you know, yeah, getting to a point where you just have enough income where you, you, know, you can cover your basics. I mean, it's, 
it's there's there's a point where you know 50% of nothing is still nothing but 50% of you know too low of an income doesn't even you know get your food on the table and 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 a cheap place to live so let's go back and look at the other side of it i mean you talked about getting to the savings rate that's great if you're making $100,000 a year but what do you do if you need to raise your income rate yeah so I'm going to do this just from the context of my story and we can pivot out and do a couple other things. But I told you I was never going to be an entrepreneur, right? I, I, was going to, I was going to just take this safe route. So I had this job, but I got back to broke in my early 30s. The key for me to be able to pay off that student loan debt by the age of 30 with 168000 was crushing my expenses, right? So if you have a very, very expensive lifestyle, it's hard for you to build, build margin. If you keep your lifestyle very lean, this is what we call bootstrap principles, right? If we keep our lifestyle very lean, it's relatively easy. So like, for instance, if you're trying to branch off on your own to become an entrepreneur, but to support your family, to keep your lights on, your business has to make $100,000 a year, like on day one, on day two, you're stuck, my friend, right? Unless you have it. So, so in my case, I was a huge fan of this. And this just looking back, this suits me. It's clearly not the path for everybody, but it suits me very well. Chicken entrepreneurship, right? AKA the side hustle. So I'm working my day job. I'm maintaining my savings rate. I've paid off my debt. I have several years worth of expenses saved up now because I have this lean lifestyle at this point in time while I was paying off my debt. My life cost him between thirty dollars to $40,000 a year. Modest mortgage, no car payment, no consumer debt. I wasn't financing my couch or my blinds or anything else. It's just here in Richmond, Virginia. You can do that. You can't do it everywhere. You can't do it in San Francisco. You can't do it in Long Island. You know, this is a limiting belief. I'm sure somebody is doing it. But here in Richmond, Virginia, plenty of people are pulling that off why can't I do that and use the difference to essentially build, my, build myself a freedom to fail fund, right? Where I could go try this. If it doesn't work, all I've sacrificed is my time. And if it does work, I build myself an escape ramp to a design your future lifestyle. That's what happened here. So we, uh, in my case, we have this 30 to 30 to Thirty to forty thousand dollar a year lifestyle. I've started this side hustle, this podcast on the time. We can come back and talk about this in just a second here if you want. And it wasn't making anything on day one. It was making zero dollars on day one. In fact, for the first month or two, it made zero dollars. It was a passion project. It's a side hustle. But I do remember very specifically the point in time which it made the first 30 cents off probably like an Amazon affiliate link, something like that. And while clearly the hourly rate wasn't good for the amount of time that I invested, it was essentially passive in that it happened while I slept at night, right? Like I woke up the next morning, wow, I made 30 cents. And it wasn't replacing my income, but it was, it was increasing, right? So month over month, I saw it. And I basically ran both side by side until I couldn't do it anymore, right? So there was an interesting thing that had happened. The podcast had actually grown pretty significantly. And it was just starting to cover my core expenses. Uh, we had a documentary that wanted to come film with us for a couple of days. We had a conference that we wanted to go to in our niche. And I wanted to go visit my wife's family in Zimbabwe. We had made a commitment to her family. We'd go visit them every two years. And it was about that time. And Zimbabwe is not something you can do with a one-day turnaround. If you go, you're going to need to go for a week or two just to justify the time. So I went to my boss and because America is kind of stingy with vacations. Corporate America is a little stingy. So I went to my boss and I said, hey, with all this going on, I know that I can't use vacation time for this, but I checked the policies. It looks like you're able to give me a discretionary leave of absence. Can I take an unpaid leave of absence to go do this stuff for my family? And my boss said, I I don't think it's in the company's best interest for us to let you do that. But because I had no debt, I paid off my student loan debt, because I had a side hustle that was just starting to cover my expenses. And because I had two years of expenses saved up, I was able to say to him, I don't think it's in my best interest to stay. And who gets to say that? Like that doesn't happen. 90% of the time when the employer comes to you and says, look, you need to toe the line. I'm sorry. We have to meekly walk back and do our jobs because we're trying to figure out how to keep the lights on. But this isn't like, this isn't a one-way door, right? It's a turnstile. I knew in the back of my mind, I'm a good employee. I'm a valued employee. They may not see it right now until I pull the carpet out, but they, you know, I can always go back. And so I'm not burning the bridges here but I'm leaving and giving myself a chance. Was it risky? I don't think it was risky. Was it an opportunity? Absolutely, right? And like, would I forgive myself? And so I think my like overarching theme here is build yourself an escape ramp that allows you to take opportunities when they come. And and having your money in place does that. When you are paycheck to paycheck, you can't afford to take even small risk. You can't afford to jump at those opportunities when they present themselves. So while you're in your day job, if you have it, assuming that you're not entrepreneur right out the gate, 
Let's use our W-2 income. Let's use our wages to build for ourselves a fund that allows us to jump at the opportunities when they present themselves. And if we fail on that first or second attempt, be in a position that we can then use that failure to propel us to future success. So I'm, I'm loving everything that you're saying, but I'm kind of thinking about the people who are listening to this show, you know, kind of right now. And the people who listen, I think a lot of them have already made the jump. And awesome. so they're already sort of, you know, they, they've, they've taken that escape ramp, but they're in the early stages of, of their business. So how, how do you cut the expenses? Let's, let's talk a little turkey yeah. of what they can do. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm going to roll through uh, just a few different things here, kind of these force multipliers. Um, first of all, many people are starting with debt, right? So you're kind of first focusing on cleaning off your debt. And like many people, frankly, don't really have an understanding of good debt versus bad debt. We think, oh, mortgage due loans, maybe good. Oh, payday loans, probably bad, right? And, and that's probably, yeah, that's not wrong necessarily. But I mean, I think one way to look at it is like, um, is interest rates, like 6% and below, you know? may or may not be decent. Anything over 6%, potentially hair on fire, right? Unless you have a very intentional plan for it. If you're above that, 10, 11, like credit card debt, 30, 40% beyond, that's astronomical. You're getting crushed. Like the, the snowball of wealth is either working for you or against you. We very quickly want to get to the point where interest rates are working in our favor, not against us. So coming up with a plan to pay off the debt is certainly part of this. And we could have a three-hour conversation on the different strategies. So I will like move on from that. But first, Getting to, the, getting to debt free. And many people say it's everything but the house. I tend to fall on that. I, I would say pay off the student loans. But if you're one of these individuals that have student loans at three or 4%, I understand considering holding on to those. But certainly above 6%, we're try, we're, that's, that's not working to our benefit. So we're trying to clean that up. Once you have that done, now you like, that's what I consider your financial freedom clock has begun, right? We're starting to work towards the black. We're moving towards a better outcome in the future. What are those things that cap that take up most of our budget? So when you look at like a census data of where Americans money goes, the big three, probably two thirds. Well, maybe, yeah, two thirds is food, housing and transportation, right? So we could talk about kicking out our lattes. That's fine. Right. But frankly, like go back to the big three. Those are the ones that are taking up most of it. So there's a few things that I, that I, would, that I would start with. So one, let's take a look at our housing. Did you buy the McMansion right out the gate? I mean, was that the case? Because the problem is once you buy the McMansion, you're also tying yourself to all those tertiary costs, like the property taxes, like the utility bills, like the, uh, the uh, utility bills, heating bills, but also furnishing it, right? HGTV, we can't just have empty rooms. We got to interior design the rooms. Like that single choice drives all of these additional costs over the period of time. So buy a reasonable house. I mean, we could go into more detail. I know individual, if you're willing to be more extreme, like you straight want to bootstrap. We talked about the, the leaner you can keep your expenses, the more freedom and flexibility it gives you to pursue some of these entrepreneurial ventures. But for most of us, housing is an expense. I know a few individuals that it's actually something that they profit from. And we use this buzzword house hacking. I mean, it's a fancy way of saying having roommates, right? I mean, if, if you can purchase a, uh, so many of us purchase a single family home and then we live in that home, we have the mortgage. What if you purchased a duplex or a triplex and rented out room two and room three, or if they're separate units, you know, unit two, unit three, I know individuals that have pulled the math on that. And while we're paying, you know, thousand, two thousand $2,000 a month for our mortgage, they're profiting to the tune of 500 to $1,000. So immediately like that whole sector of your pie, one third of your pie is not only gone, but it's actually making money. That's insane. That's a force multiplier. I know a couple of people that stack that choice with actually living next to their job. So transportation, what are we trans transporting ourselves to? We're transporting ourselves to work, either our W-2 job or our co-working space or our office or whatever. What if you stack your house hack next to your place of work? Now, can you bike to work? Can you walk to work? Like the cost of car ownership is insane. My co-host Brad uh, did the math on this and he kind of ran it in a kind of very interesting way. He ran a scenario of an individual that manage the payment. So, hey, we're always going to have a car payment. A car payment is going to be part of our life forever. You know, once that one's paid off, it's time to upgrade to the next one. We'll maintain that $300 a month car payment forever, right? M many people do that. That is a very normal statement. I deserve the new car. He bought a new car, but a modest one, like a 2003. In 2003, he bought a 2003 Honda Civic. And his plan was to buy a new car every 15 years. So, drive it for 15 years. Like, well, cars don't last for 15 years. Well, some of them do. Yours doesn't. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we know the cars that are still going to work 15 years from now. The ones that are going to be cheap to repair and maintain. Let me give you a clue. It's not an Audi. It's not a Land Rover. Like, you know, right? Those are going to be expensive. They're going to be in the shop. 
it's going to be a bear. But your 2003 Honda Civic or Toyota Camry, it's going to last for freaking forever, right? It'll be at the you apocalypse. At can get, be- you at least can get 10 years out of it. Like I, I paid off my car and I've only got 50,000 miles on it. It's five years old. And my intent is most cars I've had, no matter who they are, they'll go 100,000 miles before they start becoming a money trap. So my hope is I get four, four or five years out of the car you know, before it really has any major repairs. So that's a, that's a big, a big piece for me is I like the car. It's a cool car. I purposely bought a cool car. I wouldn't, I wouldn't think anything less, man, but but (laughs) I also bought, it's also a Mustang. So it's not like a $50,000 car. It was like a $25,000 car. But my first car when I was 16 was a 66 Mustang. The car and I were the same age. Uh, and I always wanted another one, but a 53-year-old, 50-year-old car doesn't make any sense right now. So I bought the Mustang five years ago, paid it off, and now what's great is is that, you know, like I said, I don't drive very much because I'm on planes a lot. So, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm looking at that as, as free transportation for at least four more years. There you go, man. Yeah, so he's actually at 16 years, and so he could technically get another one now, but now it's part of his core identity, so he's holding on to it. But uh, what's interesting about that is if you were to make this choice, so that one person manages the payments for 45 years. They just have a $300 a month payment for 45 years. The other person buys one car every 15 years. The difference between those two strategies, if the difference, you know, so you, you have a payment for five years, you pay it off, you have no payments for 10 years, and you do that three times over your investing lifetime. The difference in that one choice is $750,000. So let's, let's, let's kind of wrap up the, the, the finance side really quick. What advice do you have for an entrepreneur who, who might have a little bit of debt and, uh, you know, they have a modest lifestyle? You know, what advice would you have for them uh, to, to, to get the debt gone? What else can they do? So get the get get the debt gone. So first, know what you spend. Look, know what you spend is is the key to this whole thing. All these strategies that I have just rolled out and we could continue to roll out don't work if you have no idea what your life costs, right? So for three or six months, just either write it. I don't care what you do. You could write every single line item that you spend on a piece of paper. You could go more techie. I, I personally use something like Mint, where I bring all my bank accounts and everything in and credit card statements into this app so that it can kind of track for me and tell me what my life actually costs. That's a, that's a determining factor. Once you do that, then you can actually zone in on where your weaknesses are. So we mentioned housing. We mentioned cars. The third one is food. How, food is like the black hole in people's budget. Like if you're not tracking it, it, it can be insane. And so my co-host, uh, one metric that he uses that I think is just a great place to anchor. Anchoring is important. The idea that you can kind of tie yourself when you're making decisions uh, to an easy to track type of marker. He uses a $2 per person per meal rule. Now I'm going to roll out what that would actually look like, but I want to say for many people, like regardless of whether or not you strictly abide by this, using this as an anchor will save you hundreds, if not thousands of dollars a year on your groceries. So $2 per person per meal, three meals a day, $6 a day, 30 days a month, 180 bucks a month per person, 360 bucks a month for a couple. Let's say you blow that and you, and like you double it, right? Cause, Oh, well, I don't think $2 a person is reasonable, but four, I could probably do four. You're at 720. You know how many couples and families are spending thousands, $2,000 on groceries each month. I'm so, going to spend that on dinner the night of my daughter's graduation, probably just for the, the, you know, the seven of us who will go to dinner. Well, what about the wedding, man? I heard it's coming up here. You're going <laughs> to... Yeah, there was a cap put on that. So as, okay. as much as I, I probably can't afford the number I gave them, it's, there's no runaway on that, that cost for me. Well, here, if you, can, you know, if you can start to get a sense of how much you're spending a month on food and you find out after tracking it that it's upwards of 1500 bucks, it's approaching 15 to 2000 which is not... If, I, I know And families. if you're eating out, it gets there really fast. I mean, now, I, I joke about a nice night after graduation, but there's a lot of people who you know, go out and, and drop 50 bucks a head on dinner regularly. So if you're using that same marker, okay, $2 per person is my baseline, $4 my stretch. Oh, but I eat out three nights a week and it's 50 bucks a person. Whoa, okay, now I know where my money's going. And then a week later, do you feel like you got value from that? And especially there's this like utility curve, you know, when you get something every once in a while, it's special. When it's part of your weekly routine, you don't even appreciate it anymore. So many of us like just buy everything and we don't appreciate anything. It's just part of part of our routine. So part of this is knowing what you spend figuring out what it is that you value and then ruthlessly, ruthlessly cutting anything that you don't value. So you get maximum value for what you are putting money into, but then simultaneously you're one building an escape ramp for yourself and you're creating margin and a gap in your life. The other half of what you were asking me is like, 
how do I grow my business? How do I, and, and I think that's kind of a nice transition, right? Because while I get super excited and we talk about the math of financial independence all the time, this podcast is a big part of my story. Uh, and this business, this entrepreneurship that I never even imagined for myself is now my life. So I think that's where my listeners want to go is we want to talk about your business and how did you grow it and how did you get the following that you do and what tips do you have for people? But before we do, I've got another sponsor who we have to thank. So this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. Podfly sets you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure that you're going to sound amazing. They do all the heavy lifting and the technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing really cool people like Jonathan. Hey, if you want to start a podcast, and I know that some of you do, go over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. So, Jonathan, let's talk about your business. What is your business? How did you grow it? How do you make money? And what advice do you have for entrepreneurs? Yeah, so it, it, podcasting is just a wonderful art form. That It is an amazing way to uh, have, have an ongoing conversation and to explore something that you're personally interested in. So, you know, it's kind of like this intersection method. If you're going to become an entrepreneur, there's different ways to come up with an idea, right? And one of those is just what's missing, right? We'll find a problem. What's missing? Oh, let's do that. Fill the gap. The other one is the, is the intersection method. You look at what are you really interested in? What do maybe your credentials give you a background in? That sort of thing. I kind of used a, a combination of those to come up with uh, doing this type of podcast. Basically, my default conversation is talking about financial independence. Some people talk about sports. Some people talk about woodworking or hobbies or other stuff. You know, entertainment. Mine is just straight financial independence. To be honest, it's kind of a limiting topic, like in my neighborhood, right? <laughs> but nonetheless, I persist. So I found, <laughs> so I was listening to podcasts as a podcast listener. I found this community of people that were talking about this topic. And I said, I want to join the conversation. I want to be a part of the conversation. And I, uh, I, I found that there was this one guy that was talking about it that was actually in my local area, went and got lunch. And we had this in common. This is like our default conversation, talking about the tactics that people use to get to the point that working is optional. I don't really want to know how a trust fund baby became financially independent. I want to know how someone who started at zero with regular life opportunities and challenges got to the point where working is optional. Because like you said, there's a clue there, right? They've left a clue behind. What is that one thing from every single person's story that we can grab and add into our own life? And when I met him for the first time, what was interesting about him is I realized he didn't like have a flashy car. We just talked about his car. Nobody's impressed by a 2003 Honda Civic and he didn't have flashy clothes, but he had was total autonomy over his time. Right. I mean, the one, one thing that I have built into my own life now and, and he has built into his is essentially this red X month, right? You get to the point where you can just take a look, take a look at your calendar, figure out what your family wants to do first, draw a giant X through that from a work perspective and then build your work life around it. That's insane. That's like, goals, right? And that's kind of what we have built with this. So that conversation was so exciting that uh, I actually asked him, do you want to do create a show with me around this? And, and creating the idea for the show would be, you know, you have this one individual that has reached financial independence and this other individual that's on the path to financial independence. And you can kind of have these two different perspectives. The next piece of this, and I'm trying to tie this back to your audience. So we talked about how to find, you know, how to find a business idea. That's just my particular case scenario. The next part of this was what's your voice specifically to podcasting. What is your voice? Now you, you don't need to have the same voice and there's different voices out there, but you should consider it before you get started. Because if you're, we all, we all, we all know that there's an importance to being authentic. You hear that everywhere. Well, what does that mean practically? Well, when someone tries to be, pretend to be someone that they're not. So there's different voices out there. You could be the teacher, you could be the scholar, you could be the empathetic friend, you could be the, the hype man, the pitch man, like all, or you could be combinations of these as it fits. But putting a little thought into what your, what your persona is, you know, what you're doing is incredibly valuable. So we kind of had that conversation and you can see it comes through. I'm a really enthusiastic guy, you know? And so I get excited about things. Fortunately, we're talking about stuff that I get excited about. That, that was clearly me. So I'm kind of, you know, the hype man, right? He on the other side is very analytical, very thoughtful. He has an empathetic ear. You can tell when he's listening. So we kind of picked those two personas for our podcast and it's been our authentic voice, but we put some thought into creating that. Next step, 
on day one, nobody's listening to you, right? Like nobody, like your mom, you can't even get your mom to listen to your podcast on day one of your show. And so what do you do? Well, I think one, what are you, what are your basic options for advertising? So you should put some thought into actually getting your show onto iTunes, getting your branding set up, having a featured image, having a, you know, if you have like an intro music or some way of letting people know they've joined an experience, some way of get, create good content that, you know, that that's, that's probably overly simplistic, but what does that look like practically for us? It was, let's make sure we have a solid image so people can identify a brand. Let's make sure when they press play, they get a consistent, warm experience. And let's make sure we have a high quality show. So you hear people out there saying, well, you can just record into anything. You can record into your iPhone. Don't worry about quality. Just get it out there. Be content. <laughs> I mean, but the problem is if that's the choice that you make, then you're leaving the door open for someone else that's willing to do everything else, but have a higher quality show, right? So why put that headwind in your face, especially when podcasting is so inexpensive to get started with? So that, you know, have a high quality show. The next. Go on. All right. The next piece is you're going to want to get some, if you, there's different types of shows, right? You can have one person just spilling off their ideas, you know, spilling off their train of thought and that works. So if you're the academic type or you're like the Dan Carlin, hardcore history, that's awesome. That can totally work. Which I always tell people, cause I get so many questions about how long should my show be? Your show needs to be as long as it is. Cause like hardcore history is like three hours an episode and they get more downloads than just about anybody out there. So it's like, whether you're 10 minutes or three hours, the answer is what's your link. I think he has found every single person in the world that has a long commute. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm probably, but he's amazing. Yeah. So that's your thing, figuring out what your show is. So we realized quickly that we could have back and forth interactions as a conversation, but we wanted to bring guests on because we're not experts in everything. In fact, that was our strength is, and this is a big part of this, reframe your weakness as a strength. And if not a strength, an opportunity. So what's ours? Nobody knows who we are. So we, we don't have a big audience. So Tim, Fer you know, you could say Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan, oh, they have a huge audience. So it's just easy for them. Or they, they're, they're incredibly successful already. So this is going to be easy for them. So how do you turn? How do you take that and you turn it around? Well, we're more relatable, right? Right. I mean, we're just regular guys that are trying this from our living room. So if you can, what is a story you tell yourself about yourself? If you can tell yourself, instead of taking that weakness that is keeping you from trying something and turning it into an opportunity that gives you a lane, Tim Ferriss can never be the relatable guy. Joe Rogan can never be the relatable guy. I love them. They're amazing. But like by the nature of what they've carved out for themselves, they're aspirational, right? So I have a, I have a question. I want to pivot just a little bit because one of the things that I know that you've done is you've created a following. So you're the relatable guy, but you've created these, these sort of these brand ambassadors and this big following on Facebook. How do you, how do you do that? Let's, let's get down to the, the brass tacks of how do you actually you know, you talked about you have can't get your mom to listen. Well, you've transcended that. How do you do that? Great. Awesome. All right. So when we had our guests came on, there's a next little piece that I got to drop in here. It's not just making your show high quality. It's making your guests sound incredible, right? Like it, if I, if you have, if you have Tim Ferriss on your show, if you have the biggest name in podcasting on your show, but you have zero audience and they don't promote it, it does nothing for you. Nobody new is going to find the show. Nobody is going to listen. So how do you bridge that? Well, if you have somebody that has a following and it doesn't need to be a huge following, but you give them the best experience they have ever had, if you make them sound like a rock star. So let's say someone goes on five podcasts and at the end of those five podcasts, like they listen to them because they're, you know, they haven't done a ton and they listen to it and they just are horrified at how bad they sound. Their edits haven't been cleaned up. They have ums and ahs. It just sounds like a train wreck. They're not going to promote it. What incentive would they have? But if you kind of let them know ahead of time, hey, you're going to sound amazing at the end of this. We're going to protect the experience and make sure that the message you want to get across comes through. And then they listen to it and they are over the moon. Now you have someone that's sharing the show, not out of a sense of obligation, but out of this is how they want their following to discover them because you have done a better job helping them tell their story than they could on their own. That's a force multiplier for you as someone that has no brand and no recognition. It only takes a few of those before you have an audience. Now, the next question, because you were saying, how do you get an audience? All right, now you have your audience. That was it. It's that simple. Make your guests sound amazing and give them a reason to want to share it with their following. All right. Step two, how do you turn your fledgling audience into brand ambassadors? Add so much value to your, their life that they're desperate to share it with their friends and family. That's what we did next. So how do you do that? Well, 
as you know, podcasting is like one way directional. You meet one of your listeners and they come up to you and say, Tom, I feel like I know you. We've been listening to you for several years now. It's incredible. What if you could actually make that bi-directional? What if you could actually interact with them and find out what's on their mind, what you've been missing, how to tailor your message, hone in on something that they're specifically struggling with? Facebook pages are horrible for that. Facebook groups are amazing. Facebook groups are an intimate group where you can have a bi-directional conversation that focuses and intensifies the message of your show. We latched onto that very, very early on and our audience became the show. This was always one of my ideas. Uh, I love reading blogs, but I'll be honest with you. I find that some of the most insightful thoughts are not the blog articles, but the comments below the blogs. In fact, I, I, know I, agree. Do- I fully agree with that. I love reading comments. They are lost to the void of the internet very, very quickly. They're the most insightful things. They add so much value, but they get buried in the pages. And, and they just there's no additional value for additional readers that don't, like you or I, take the time to go dig through the comments. So what if I could flip that script? What if I could actually highlight those and make those a part of the show? Podcasts are uniquely situated to be able to bring in feedback and air that. So for us, we quickly rolled out a second episode a week. Now, this was not easy. You know, like going from one a week to two a week is not like if you're a podcaster, you know, ooh, production wise, ah, I was doing all the editing on day one. So even more so, I was like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work. But what we did is we aired our Monday episode with the guest. And then we quickly did a turnaround. We collected feedback from our Facebook group. And then we used that feedback to create a second episode highlighting the guest takeaways, their criticisms, what they think we missed, et cetera. Basically, we gave our, our listeners agency over the show. Now, that was like a a catalyst for where we are now. Now it's some of that, but it's even more. If you know how we talked about in the beginning, like all entrepreneurs fail and then you build because you kind of iterate and you find out what's working. It was even more than that. Now, the Friday Roundup is not so much tied to guest feedback, but really to that larger point is how do you bring listeners onto the show in any capacity through voicemails, through emails, through Ask Me Anything, and how do you source those? So Facebook groups, like that's not your website. You'd love to have all that traffic on your website, but what it is, is... It is a content machine. So our Facebook group has over 40,000 people and it generates over 200,000 comments a month. Those comments are what the internet is actually thinking. This is what people that are listening to your show are actually thinking. And if you can turn that again, if you can bring that back and turn that into more content for the audience, it creates a virtuous cycle. And so what happened over time is people had questions that we weren't answering because it was a blind spot or it wasn't our experience base. We were able to take that information and go get the guests they wanted based on that information. We were able to take a question and dig into that and provide that back to the show and then can do that over a period of two years. And our podcast now is just about to hit a million downloads a month. So it is, that has taken us in beginning of 2017, this started. My mom hadn't even listened to it yet. Now my mom listens every day and we're about (laughs) to, uh, Thanks, mom. <laughs> I was just going to say, if she listens to this, hi, mom. Hi, mom. <laughs> I, I have a question for your mom. She can come and, and contact me directly. Were you always this enthusiastic? I'm kind of exhausted at this point of the interview. You're like, <laughs> you, I, I, I wish you were my best friend because I would wake up every day and want to do more because just your energy ah, level. There's so much we can do. I know. It's great. <laughs> and and this, is, this is sort of a question, right? Uh, clearly, you have one speed, and that's 10. So... You know, yes. how does someone do it who might run at a six or a seven? Now, I run at a 10, so I get it. But you're, yeah, exa- you're tens, exhausting could, You're exhausting me. So I think you're like a, a 10 squared. We could never be co-hosts, dude. We just couldn't do it. Like, we're both at 10s. I have a partner, and I told you I, I am an enthusiastic person. I run, yeah, I run at 10. I'll start using that now. He runs at a six, like in the best possible way. This is a gift. Dan Carlin runs at a six. A six is not bad. It has to do with play speed, right? And- people need that. So if I were doing this all the time, I think people would bail on me. I really do. Like, I mean, it's a great to be here and it gets you amped, gets you wanting to do something. But if you're always at a 10, it's exhausting. It's too much. It's too much. So what if you can slow it down? So it's almost like a cheat sheet, having a co-host that pairs with your persona so perfectly. And that's a piece to people. If you can't do it all, find a co-host, find a complimentary skill set. And this is in many things in life with your business. Find, look for partners or people that can help you along the way that can bring in complementary skill sets or fill in blind spots for yourself. This isn't just in podcasting. This is in everything. And some of the most successful businesses in the world either happen with public partnerships or honestly, private partnerships, right? Where it wasn't as obvious to the public, but rarely does an individual build something by himself. It's with a team. 
Well, I, I, you just hit on a, a hot button for me. So the people who listen to the show, you probably don't know this, but the people who listen to the show know that a year ago I started doing stand-up comedy uh, as, as a performer. And at 52 years old, I was a little bit late to the game, uh, but I've had a lot of fun with it. Now, I'm not, you know, Jerry Seinfeld isn't nervous about job security because I'm doing open mic nights, but I've done 53 open mic nights and a couple have been invited to be a featured comic in a couple of shows. And... I've done well. And in fact, my wife and I went to a comedy festival and watched like 30 or 40 comics. And she was like, you know, she has not been like, yay, I'm going to come to open mic night with you every time. But she always wants to see the video. And she's always trying to make sure I'm keeping it cleaner than maybe I do. And she's you know, been very <laughs> Tone su- it down, Tom. super, Tone it down. <laughs> yeah, super supportive. You didn't need to use that expletive, expletive word in that space. Uh, but uh, she's been very, very supportive. But her comment was, you know, you could have been in this festival because you would have fallen in the, you wouldn't have been the funniest guy there, but you would have fallen as in the middle. You, you know, you could have done this. And so I've done well for what I've done for the past year. But here's the interesting thing is in talking to some other comics and in, in doing some reading and some research, one of the things I've decided I need to do is find a writing partner. Now, not necessarily like writing partners who do sketch comedy and create things together, but somebody to workshop ideas with. And, and my thought was I need to find someone like me, someone who's maybe a little bit older, who's not trying to, you know, chunk it all and become a professional comic. A lot of the people I've befriended are like 24 and they want to move to Hollywood. Uh, and I was thinking I need to find someone more like me. But I recently saw a comic speak and she made me realize in her interview that she was doing that maybe what I need is I need to find someone very different than me. And so it was like, instead of finding, you know, some, some older guy who wants to sit and sit around and and share ideas on what we're talking about, maybe I need to find some like really dynamic, you know, younger, maybe African American woman or or Asian woman or somebody who's just not my demographic that I can bounce ideas off of and, and, and have do that. So it's interesting when you talk about partnerships, because one of the things I've taught for a decade is why your network matters. So even if it's not your partner, like in your case, it's a business partner. But even if it's not that, just having someone to workshop ideas with and making sure that it's not an echo chamber. We live in a society where we're very pro-bubble. And I think uh, one of the things I walked away with recently is for my comedy to be better, I need to get out of my own bubble and get around some people who have different life than I do. Awesome, man. Yeah. How do you feel about bubbles? I'm for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pro-bubble. <laughs> Said no one ever. So... So I think that you hit on an interesting thing about having the right partner. And like, like you said, it doesn't have to be a public partnership that everybody knows about. Sometimes it's having the right mentor. We talk on this show a lot about finding, you know, mentors and people who can guide you. And sometimes your mentor doesn't even have to know they're your mentor. You know, like I said, I think you're my new mentor and I may never talk to you again. I just, you know, I got to go listen to your show because uh, your, your enthusiasm for all this is, is, is really contagious. So one more question I want to ask you before we sort of wrap up. I talk a lot in my work about this gap that exists between potential and performance or between potential and results. And we see it with entrepreneurs all the time is they start a business and people think, wow, that's going to be awesome. And then it doesn't make it. Well, how come they, they, they had potential? What do you think that delta is between the ones who go farther across that gap and the ones who just fall into the abyss? Yeah, you know, I think it comes back to that. First, taking action, right? Doing anything, doing anything to get yourself outside of the comfort zone. Just take action on an idea. How do you know if you're going to like a flavor of ice cream or what flavor of ice cream you're going to like? You're going to have to try it, right? Try something. My, uh, I just think that's the biggest thing. And, I, and honestly, my script was basically written at 17, I thought. I went to pharmacy school. Like, all right, so four years of, I'm going to go to pharmacy school. So four years of undergrad, four years of, that's eight years, right? Four years of pharmacy school. And then after that, so eight years of education, four years to pay off my debt. I have 12 years dedicated to a profession that I am no longer in, right? I mean, my path basically should have looked like using what I just described for you, back to broke, six-figure salary, great income, no debt, 10 years in this job, and I'm good to go based on what I just laid out for you. But it didn't look like that. because. And what changed? I was listening to podcasts. I was listening to people that were following their passions and I was getting new information. If I had just been watching Seinfeld reruns, God bless him. I love that show. But if I had just been watching Seinfeld reruns, this future, like me having this conversation with you doesn't happen, right? So it's constantly exposing yourself to that next piece of information and getting yourself closer to something that will allow you to design a future you can get excited about. But it starts quite honestly with taking a first step. And for me, that first step started with First step was listening to a podcast, finding out there was someone in my area, messaging him, 
to just say, hey, can we meet up for lunch? So mentorship, right? Like this doesn't start with me pitching them on idea. It just starts with me saying, wow, you have had an incredible journey. I think there's value there. I want to pick your brain. Just find it. So take one person that you aspire to be more like, just take them to lunch, pay for their meal and just glean information from them, right? That could be it. It could be that simple. So try all the flavors of ice cream, find something that works for you. You're going to end up in a wonderful place. Well, and the other thing about me is when I turned 50, I decided I had spent most of my life with my ladder against the wrong walls. And I decided I was going to make age 50 to 75 the best years of my life. Uh, I'm a little envious that you figured out in your early 30s, hey, I'm against the wrong wall. I'm, I'm going to change this up. But I think at any age, you can make that decision. You can decide I am going to get off this ladder and I'm going to you know, carry it across the room and put it against the wall I want it up against, not the one that my parents said or society said, or in your case, that I picked at 17. Um, and I think that's something that I want the listeners of this show to uh, learn from. And I, I get a lot of comments from people all the time because I talk about this idea of my ladder having been against the wrong wall. I was very successful in sales and marketing. And in fact, you know, you talk about money. I would have had more money maybe if I had stayed in sales and marketing because I was doing very well. My, my salary kept going up, but I was miserable. And so getting out of that, out of that uh, you know, sort of wrong path was really important. And that's the thing with my kids. You know, I I tell them all the time, you know, my only regret is I didn't figure out how to start my own business earlier. So whatever it is you want to do, you know, don't sit back and just wait. Don't let life happen to you. Make it happen. You know, make it happen. Awesome, man. Yeah, that's great advice. And I bet every single week, you know, I I bet you get emails from time to time. Someone says, you convinced me to move my ladder. You know, like that, as a result of this show, I want to move out of my current field. So I get, I get it both from the podcast and I make my living as a professional speaker. So I speak at 50 different conferences for companies or associations a year. And uh, recently I had a young engineering student come up to me and he said, I chose engineering because my dad said you can make money as an engineer and I'm good at math and I hate it. And so we had a discussion about how young he was and how you know, he could finish his degree in engineering doesn't mean he has to go be an engineer. In fact, he can bring that into one of a billion fields where, you know, he will be so sought after because he has that background. Uh, but that isn't what he has to go and, and do if it's not what he wants to do. And I thought, God, I wish I'd had that conversation at 20. Yeah, man. So, Jonathan, I ask everybody who comes on the show who they admire in the world of entrepreneurship, out in the entrepreneur sphere, if you will, because I think great entrepreneurs, I, I think they're observers. And so who do you look at and say, hmm? They're pretty cool. Yeah, yeah they are. I have someone in mind, as you were saying that, probably the coolest person I've ever met. His name is Alan Donegan, and he runs a business called Pop-Up Business School. And originally it started in the UK. Now they're doing more here, but here's what it is. He goes to inner city neighborhoods and he sets up a pop-up school where over a course of a week, he teaches people how to start a business for free. We're very close to nearly free. And he doesn't charge the attendees anything for it. So what he does is he goes to like um, urban neighborhoods and housing developments and places like that. He finds sponsors for it. That way he can give it away to the attendees for completely free. By the end of the week, they have their product and they make their first or the end of two weeks, maybe they make their first sale and it transforms lives. You know, and, and I, one thing he's doing, we're talking about financial independence and kind of flipping personal finance on its head, moving up from a defensive game that ensures you a, a solid retirement to an aggressive offense that allows you to reclaim your best time now. He's doing something similar with the business world. What is the business playbook? Go into debt, takes money to make money, you know, and come up with a business plan, all of this. He just is rebooting the whole thing beginning to end. And by the end of this two weeks, you see like the, the veil come off these people's eyes. They can see the matrix and they're like, wow, I have something. I have an idea and now I have a product and now I've made a sale. This is possible for me. And I'm, I'm just a huge fan of his. So it's Alan Donegan. Huh, I think that's, that's awesome. I've not heard of him. I will go and check that out. Pop-up business school. Is that what you said it's called? Pop-up business school. That's awesome. Hey, the last question I ask everybody, Jonathan, is what do you do to give back to the greater good? Because I think as an entrepreneur, you know, I think we have more of a responsibility to, to give back in some way. And what's been great about interviewing over 400 people is all the different ways that people who are having success in life have found to serve our society. So, so what do you do? Yeah. So the, the cop out answer is, is my podcast making the world a better place? Uh, that's <laughs> hopefully right. But behind that, we actually started a nonprofit, um, 
and that we're actually rolling out this year to start promoting financial literacy to people that wouldn't probably just listen to a podcast, right? So how do we get this into the lives of families where this has never been on their radar? They're not dealing with how do I get to the point where working is optional, but frankly, they're just trying to set up a budget for the first time, or they're trying to get out of the, you know, the grasp of maybe really, really bad debt. Uh, how do you get this into the fo- into the lives of the military, people that are serving our country? And, you know, they've dedicated their lives to serving our country. And there's amazing opportunities there. But because they're kind of sharks picking at them from the outside, they uh, are really not in a good financial place. So that's kind of something that we're working on right now. And it's been a big, big focus of ours. And I love it when people are able to tie either what their business is about to the way they give back or to some other some other cause that's, you know, something that's happened in their life and they find a way to tie to that. So cheers to you. Hey, if somebody's listening to this show and, and they're as taken by your, your personality and your enthusiasm as I am, how do they find you? How do people get in touch with you? Thank you. Yeah, the podcast is called Choose FI, and you can search for it anywhere that podcasts are found. Choose FI, you can do one word or two. And then our website is choosefi.com, and we have a start page for individuals that are really looking to start on their path to financial independence. Choosefi.com slash start. That is awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for being here on the show. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. Like I said, you're, you're contagious in your enthusiasm. So uh, I'm going to go take care of my finances by lunchtime. Amazing. There you go. Hey, and I say it every show, thank you to those of you who tune in and listen. You know, if it wasn't for having an audience, why would we have a podcast? So I really appreciate all of you. Uh, I appreciate the feedback that I get. When there's an episode that you like, there are people who reach out on Twitter or through email. You can find me on Twitter at Cool Podcast or at Tom Singer. Uh, also, you can always email me at tom at tomsinger.com. And remember, Tom is spelled T-H-O-M. Hey, we're going to be back in a couple of days with an interview with somebody just as cool as Jonathan. Now, I know you're thinking, Tom, how is that possible? How will you ever find anyone as cool as Jonathan? But we seem to do it every single time. Uh, so plan on coming back. You can always go backwards and listen to the archives. We have a lot of great shows. A lot of success has been left by the people who we've interviewed along the way. Um, and then, uh, while you're out there doing your day, try something new. I talk about it all the time. If you're doing the same thing, you're going to get the same results. So try new things. Go buy that shirt, trynewthings.shop. And while you're out there trying something new, have a great day. Thank you for being part of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. Without your participation and listening to these conversations, there is no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter at at TomSinger. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.